let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to Psalm 72. Psalm 72, as we bring to a conclusion our summer study through the Psalms. And not only are we bringing our summer study through the Psalms to a conclusion today, but Psalm 72 stands as the conclusion to book number two of the Psalms. Psalm 72 serves as the conclusion. So next summer, we'll start anew in book number three. In book number three, this psalm today, as you will note at the very beginning in the heading of this psalm, it says, of Solomon, of Solomon. If you go back and look at the majority of the headings in the first two books of the psalm, so Psalm 1 through Psalm 72, you'll notice that the overwhelming majority of these psalms have a heading that by and large have a connection directly to David. And so what we've done in Psalm 1 through Psalm 72 is in some way track the life of King David as we see, for example, fleshed out in the Kings or in Samuel. And we come to this text today of Solomon, and more than likely, this is a psalm of David as David is transferring the authority and the power of the kingdom to Solomon. And this is David's prayer for his son. This is David's hope. This is David's desire that his son Solomon might rule in this righteous way as communicated here in this psalm. The very beginning, the psalmist declares, King David declares, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This psalm begins in the very beginning with a prayer. This is David's heart. This is David's passion. This is David's desire for Solomon as he rules and reigns on behalf of God for the people. In this entire psalm, David prays for a just king to rule with righteousness. David prays in the entirety of this psalm for a king to rule with righteousness, a ruler whose righteous judgments, whose righteous leadership will usher in peace upon the earth and among God's people. This is David's desire. And so he begins here in verses 1 and 2 with a prayer, asking God to give Solomon the ability to rule with justice. Justice is, at the end of the day, a characteristic of God himself. Justice is who God is. God is one who is just in and of 
himself, our very concept, our very understanding of what justice even means flows from the very character of who God is. So understand ultimately that what David is desiring in his son Solomon is that Solomon would be a man after God's own heart. That Solomon would be a king that rules in the character of who God is. That Solomon would be a display, would be a visual representation of God who is spirit. Notice how David begins verses 1 and 2. He begins with this concept of justice in verse 1 and then moves to righteousness and your righteousness to the royal son. In other words, God's ability to rule rightly. But then notice verse 2. He, he flips these, these concepts. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. So David is saying, Solomon, my greatest desire for you as king of Israel is not that you might have the greatest and the strongest and the mightiest military in all the world. Solomon, my greatest desire for you is not that you might be the smartest king in all the world. Solomon, my desire for you is not that you might have the greatest riches and wealth in all the world. No, David's desire for Solomon is that Solomon might rule and represent God. And it asks a question of your life and of my life. What is the greatest desire of your life this morning? What is your prayer for your life today? What is the legacy that you desire to leave for your family, for your sphere of influence? And more broadly, Woodlawn, what is the heart and desire of this church? What do we want to be known as? What do we want to be known by? What do we want to represent to the people in this community? That we have the greatest facilities? That we have unbelievably kind and generous people? David reminds us that the greatest desire not only for the king of Israel, but also of your life and of my life and the life of this church is that we might be people who emulate the character of God. Do you desire to be a person that when others look at you, they say, there, is a godly man. Parents, in the context of your home, how do you want your kids to know you? 
in the context of your work, when you show up at the plants, when you show up at the hospital, when you show up in the office, what are people saying about your life? David says, Lord, I want my son, your king, to be one who follows in your footsteps, a man of justice and of righteousness. One who will rightly execute the law of God. One who will do so with equity. One who will do so representing the king himself. This is David's prayer for his son Solomon. And then notice how David continues here in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. David asked God to give Solomon this ability to rule the people with justice. Why? Because when the king rules with justice, the people experience peace. When the king rules with justice, the land reaps the reward in terms of prosperity. When the king rules with justice and righteousness, all the people experience the justice of God. Look as as David explains this for us in verses three, four, five, six, and seven. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures. As long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown uh, mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound. For how long? Till the moon shall be no more. This is how long David desires the righteousness and the justice of God to be in the heart of the king. Now, for the majority of you, you've read your Bible, you've been students of history, you've been students of the Bible, and you already know the narrative of how the kingship of Israel works itself out. So let's just go back to the first king, and let's ask the question of Saul was, Was Saul a king who walked perfectly in the justice and righteousness of God? Was David a man after God's own heart? Was David a man who walked perfectly in God's justice and righteousness? No, in some ways you can't help but think that David is responding out of a reflection of his own life. David is responding to the Lord out of, out of what he knows to be the consequences of his own sin. David doesn't want Solomon 
to act in the same way that he does. David doesn't want Solomon to experience the same calamity in his life that David has had to endure. Why? Because of David's own sin. David knows what the Lord requires. David knows what God demands. And what David is showing us this morning in this text is the perfect image of a king who follows God. Will Solomon be this king? Will Solomon rule with justice and righteousness in such a way that peace is throughout all the land? That the land is prosperous and that the people experience complete and total justice? This is David's desire for Solomon. But we know, as Paul Harvey said, the rest of the story. And no, neither will Solomon reign in this way. But look at the beautiful imagery that David uses in this psalm to depict for you and me his desire, ultimately God's desire for the king. Look how he uses the illustration of the earth. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills and righteousness. David is rightly understanding that when the king rules in righteousness, when the king executes perfectly this covenantal relationship with God, that it has a prosperity for the land. This is the promise of God all the way back to a creation. Of course, we know what happens in creation. Adam and Eve fall, and the land itself experiences the growing pains of of the earth because of the sinfulness of Adam and Eve. But David is depicting for us what happens, the image of what takes place when the king rightly executes God's justice and righteousness. The entire earth rejoices. The entire land responds in the intended way in which God has created her. If we rewind the clock and we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 before Adam and Eve fall, what we see in the recounting of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that everything God has created was good. And in fact, we come to the very end of the narrative in Genesis chapter 1, and we learn that what God has created is exceedingly good. See, friends, God's intended purpose in creation was that Adam and Eve and by extension, all those who flowed from Adam and Eve would live in this level of prosperity and benefit from the land. See, what David is reminding you and me is what God originally intended creation to be, and it begs the question, how in the world do we ever get back to this expression? Can Solomon do it? 
Can Solomon actually rule and reign in perfect justice and righteousness in such a way that the mountains bear prosperity for the people? In other words, that God's shalom, that God's peace is so pervasive it even affects crops. Can Solomon bring about this type of response in the earth? Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. We sang just a few moments ago, Jesus, kind and strong. This is what David is desiring for Solomon. This is the type of leadership and reign that David is imaging for his son that Solomon, the king, with all power, with all authority, with great strength, with great military power, with great, with great wealth, that he might use all of those things for whose benefit? How easy is it for you and me to be kind and gracious to people who are kind and gracious to us. You know, after you've been at work all day and you come home and the wife has dinner on the table right at 5.30, Brother Dirk, it's your favorite meal in all the world. She's got your sweet tea poured right there just waiting for you and you walk in and she pulls the chair out for you. You sit down and she scoots it up and she places your napkin on your lap. Kisses you on the head. And your response to her is to say, darling, whatever you would like, just tell me. How easy is that? What have you really done? You see, Solomon is saying, David is saying to Solomon, Solomon, you really don't prove anything when the only people to whom you're responsible, the only people to whom you will respond are those that can benefit you back. The other powerful and, and wealthy in the land. No, David prays that Solomon will be a king who stands on behalf of those who cannot stand for themselves, who will speak on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves, who will provide on behalf of those who cannot provide for themselves, that Solomon will be a king who stands on the side of those who are oppressed. For how long? For how long does Samuel, David desire Samuel to live in this way? May they fear you while the sun endures. As long as the moon exists throughout all generations. Verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. David is praying for God's lasting shalom, for God's lasting peace to be pervasive forever and ever and ever among God's people. 
This is what David desires. But then we come to verse 8. And here in verses 8 through 14, David will have another request of the Lord. David asks the Lord to give Solomon rule from sea to sea. In other words, David is asking the Lord to give Solomon rule over all of the earth. Why? Because God's king is a deliverer to the oppressed. David knows of the benefits of a righteous king ruling upon the entire world. Look how David asks of this beginning in verses 8 and 9. May he have dominion. Now that's an interesting word. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and this prayer for dominion to rightly understand what it is David is desiring for his son. And we hear these words from God as God looks upon Adam and Eve in creation. And we hear these words, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We, as God's creative beings, were designed by the Almighty, by God himself, to be men and women who exercise God's kingly rule upon the earth. And David, once again, is going all the way back to that creative principle back to that creation principle. He's grounding his hope and desire for Solomon in creation. David didn't just dream this, this up himself. David didn't just make this up, this up himself. David is bringing us all the way back to God's creative purpose. This is how God desires, David desires for Solomon to rule and to reign. From everywhere, from sea to sea, from the river Euphrates, all the way to the ends of the earth. This is Scripture's way of designating in the Old Testament all of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. David desires Solomon to have complete, total reign everywhere. And look at the response he desires from the rest of the kings, beginning in verse 10. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their lives and precious is their blood in his sight. This is why David prays in this way. This is why David asked the Lord to give Solomon control and reign from sea to sea upon the entirety of the earth, 
because David knows when Solomon rules and executes reign in this godly way, that it brings about peace for all. That God's righteous rule among all the earth, what does it do? It brings about deliverance. God is, after all, in the redeeming business, is he not? And this is the desire that David has for King Solomon. Solomon, would you rule and reign in this way? Would you be this type of king upon whom these characteristics of God are stamped indelibly, that they might last forever and ever? And we see the incredible benefits to this type of kingly reign. But notice David's prayer beginning in verse 15. David acknowledges that when the blessing of God is upon the king, the entirety of the world benefits. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessing invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may a wave. Reminds us of what he prayed for back in verse 3. May its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. David concludes this hope and desire for his son Solomon with a blessing to the Lord. For David understands that when the king has the blessing of God, when the king has the blessing of the Lord, all benefit, and God himself is blessed. David concludes this prayer with a desire to see this reign of Solomon last forever, and the benefits that we've already seen articulated through this narrative be extended. And then he closes here in verses 18 and 19 with this doxology, with this reflection on who God himself is. Ultimately, it's not the king that David desires, it's not Solomon that David desires to live in this way, who is the one who's doing wondrous things. When the king functions in this way and all the benefits of this just, righteous leadership is executed, who is the one to be praised? God. God is the one who is doing wondrous things through his king. But we ask the question, what king? 
we know that Solomon doesn't rightly follow God's command. And shortly after, the kingdom is going to be divided between Israel and Judah, and we have a long list of kings that will flow from there, the majority of whom do not execute God's justice or righteousness in any measurable way like this. And so who is this king? Who is this king whose dominion extends from sea to sea? Who is this king whose dominion runs from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth? Who is this king that his enemies bow down at his feet and eat the dust? Who is this king who lives long? Who is this king? that all the kings of the world will come to and bow in submission. I submit to you, friends, this morning that David in some ways wrote and prayed better than he knew for the right fulfillment of David's prayer is not found in Solomon, or Rehoboam, or Jeroboam, or Ahaz, or any of the other kings that would flow from the line of David. But there is only one king who perfectly exemplifies David's hope in this passage of Scripture, and his name is Jesus. Would you take a walk with me real quickly through this text of Scripture and let's marvel together at the kingly, powerful, prosperous rule of King Jesus. Let's begin in verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We go back, as I mentioned a few moments ago, back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and this is what God's intended purpose is for his creation, that his creation might function and and flow in in this way. We call this Adamic dominion. This is God's desire for all of creation. But Adam and Eve don't fulfill this covenant that God has made with them. They fall, they enter into sin, And so we have a problem. Adam and Eve aren't rightly executing God's dominion. And what happens? Adam and Eve are placed outside the garden, and you know the rest of the story. They they begin with their own little family, and how well does God's dominion function in Adam and Eve's life when they start having kids? It doesn't go so well, does it? And we get to the end of the book of Genesis, and there Joseph who we think is going to be the redeemer for all of the nation of Israel, he ends up dead. How's the dominion going, we ask? Not too well. And then we come into the kings, and the kings themselves don't execute well until we get to King Jesus. 
We see in Jesus this one who will establish the kingdom of God, and yet we understand, we wonder, well, pastor, if you say Jesus is the one who is extending dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, why in the world do we still have problems? Why does the text of Scripture even tell us that Satan is the ruler of this world? Is Jesus so weak and anemic that he cannot extend the dominion of God? Did he not fully execute the kingdom of God when he came in his first incarnation? He began the process. And one day, friends, Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes again, he will execute perfectly the kingdom of heaven from sea to sea, from coast to coast. And when he exercises the dominion of God as God has rightly established it, he will rule with justice and righteousness. And guess what will happen? All the benefits listed in this text of Scripture will be the benefit of ours. The mountains will bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. The tops of the hills will wave with the prosperity of the fruits of the land. As King Jesus rules and reigns among his people. But notice, David is not finished bringing us back to this creation principle. <coughs> May desert tribes bow down to him, and his enemies lick the what? Dust. You remember back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and the curse of the serpent. When the serpent was cursed, what was his consequence? that he will crawl on his belly. He will lick the dust of the earth for all the ages of his life. Now don't miss it, friends. Come back with me to, Gen come back with me to uh, Psalm 72. We have a principle of dominion that's established in creation. We know the narrative between Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and Genesis chapter 3. But what do we have in this beautiful, prophetic statement, even wrapped in the midst of destruction? We have a promise from God. And what is that promise from God? That there is a seed that there is a seed of the woman and that there is a seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to live their lives in this battle between one another. But there is coming a day when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And don't miss it. In Psalm 72, verse 9, when David prays, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. David has taken us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and he is reminding us of the promise that is coming through the seed of a woman, and I submit to you today that the promise of the seed of the woman was fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus 
is the one who is coming to reign and rule in all righteousness. And friends, when he does come, the enemies will lick the dust of the earth. He will completely, totally defeat them. This is the promise of God to you and me who by faith hope in this King Jesus, we will see his dominion reestablished upon this earth. But we also see in verses 10 and 11, this narrative of these kings who typify all of the earth, and what are these kings gonna do? From everywhere, from Tarshish and other coastlands, they're going to render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings bow down before him. All the nations serve him. Writing of this period of time at the very beginning of his prophetic book is Isaiah. And Isaiah, like David, peers into the future and he looks to the reign of an earthly king. And listen what Isaiah has to say about this reign. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow where? To it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord for Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and decide, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall bear, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. David sees it. Isaiah sees it. A day when all people will flow to this king. Who is this king? King Jesus. And Revelation depicts for us that day. As John says, he looked and he, he, looked and he saw a new heaven and, and a new earth, and he saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the sky. And he depicts this time in which Jesus is going to rule and reign, and he tells us that there's going to be no more crying. God's going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes. When will that be? The return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you looking forward to this king's rule? Are you hoping in this king? For this king, friends, will be the only king that can fulfill the promise of verse 12, 13, and 14. He will deliver the needy when he calls. 
The poor in him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. This king is in the business of redeeming helpless humanity. Who is this one king that helps helpless humanity? We see him in the writings of Matthew. This king whom David prays would be one who has compassion. Listen to this compassionate king. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, 36, 37, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might cast out, that he might send out laborers into the harvest. Who is this king that looks upon compassion in the, of the needy state of the people? His name is is Jesus. And friends, Jesus has looked out upon compassion against all sinners. And the greatest act of compassion ever displayed in all of humanity, when Jesus gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. When Jesus hung on the cross, thereby taking the wrath of God, and that wrath being placed solely on the person of Jesus, a wrath that you deserved and a wrath that I deserved. But in that act, compassionate, kingly Jesus has extended his grace and his mercy to you and me, a needy people who so desperately need the work of God applied to our lives. And in that moment, Jesus has done all that is necessary for you and for me, your neighbor, your family, your friends, and all the world to experience this kingly reign. Do you know this Jesus, friend? Have you trusted in this Christ? Have you believed in this Jesus? Perhaps no greater interpretation of this hymn has been given than that of Isaac Watts. When he penned the words to this most glorious hymn, Jesus shall reign. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moons shall wax 
and wane no more. Would you stand with me and sing this hymn, Jesus Shall Reign. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does excessive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon be seated. Friend, as you're seated, would you take a few moments where you're seated and reflect upon this glorious text? Do you desire this king's reign in your life? Are you emulating this king's characteristics? in your life? Are you pursuing righteousness and justice? Do you desire holiness? Are you looking forward to this king's forever reign? Do you pray for that rain? Do you hope in that rain? 
do you desire for others in your sphere of influence and around the world to live in that reign with you? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. Perhaps you're here today and you've heard of all the benefits of this king's reign. And God, by His Spirit, has convicted you of your need to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ so that you now can begin to live in the benefits that this king has to offer. See, friends, the benefits of the kingdom of God are not only for a day that's yet to come, it's it's now. We have the benefit of being known by the king today. We have the benefit of living for the king today. Would you come to Christ today? For the scripture says today is the day of salvation for tomorrow is not promised. Perhaps you'd like for one of us just to pray with you. Myself and Pastor Travis would be standing down front. We would delight in praying for you that the truths of this text might be evident in your life. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ so that we together collectively might see the kingdom of God expanded. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Father, as we now respond to you, we ask that our responses might be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.